It was caused uh, by the fact that man, sinful man, hates authority. And on the other hand, Jesus has absolute authority over all things. And what we've seen in the scriptures in the book of Mark is that these religious leaders have been confronted with Jesus' authority time and time again. But yet time and time again, they refuse to acknowledge that authority. So in light of that continual unwillingness to submit to Christ, Jesus then tells the parable that we're about to look at in just a minute or two. This parable is known as the, the parable of the wicked tenants. It's, it's referred to as a judgment parable. So we're going to uh, take a little bit later, we're going to take of the Lord's Supper. But before we do, I want to take a, a brief look at this uh, parable. And what I want to see you to see is the warning to anyone who continues to reject the absolute sovereign authority over their life. This particular warning was to, first and foremost, within its original context, was to the religious leaders. However, the warning still applies for all people of all times. And so we want to see several things in the text of Scripture concerning this warning this morning. First of all, we see in the Word a rejection of authority despite the goodness of God. We see a rejection of authority despite the goodness of God. Now, notice, if you will, follow along in verse 12, if you will. Here, Jesus, the, verse 12 says, And he began to speak to them in parables. He said, A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Now, that first phrase there, he says, A man planted a vineyard is a demonstration of God's goodness. It's, it refers to the call of God to his people. The, the planter here, the, the, the person that owns the land, is none other than God himself. The vineyard is Israel, the nation of Israel. It's the Jews, God's chosen people, and his goodness was seen in his choosing of his people. Um, the Bible expressly says that God did not choose Israel because they were the greatest nation or because they were the most powerful nation or because they were a good nation. None of those things. In fact, the opposite is true. They were small. They were not mighty. They were, they were sinful. In fact, when we see in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 12 when God goes and decides to call a man out and he will be the forefather of this great nation who will be a blessing to all the other nations, he calls a pagan to do it. Uh, Abraham wasn't some guy that was seeking after God. He wasn't less pagan than the, all the other pagans. He was neck deep in idol worship when God chose to call him out and to call him to be used to be able to reach the whole known world. So God's calling of his people, the Jewish people, is a demonstration not of the people's goodness, but of God's goodness. So his goodness was seen in his calling to the people to himself, but it was also in his care to the people as well. Notice in the scriptures the care that this, this, this uh, man took with this vineyard. He says he put a fence around it, and he dug a pit for the wine press, and he built a tower. Now, scholars aren't really completely agreed with what each of these mean. In essence, I think in a general way, it just means that he cared after the nation of Israel. Once he chose and set them apart, he took great care to watch over them. When it says that he put a fence around them, it means that he was protecting them. He was protecting them from people to come in and be able to root up and to be able to destroy. Those that wanted to destroy God's people, he would ultimately protect. It says that he dug, uh, when, when he dug a pit, 
for the wine press. It means that he had given everything they needed to be a fruitful, prosperous people. And then when it says finally that he had built this tower, it's basically imagery of of him understanding that he would always be watching over that specific nation. He took great care with the people. I think one of the ideas is is this. is one thing for God to call. It's another thing for God to also care. Um, One of the ways that he cared for the people was to give them a land. Uh, to give them Israel, and not just Israel, the land of Israel, but to give them a place of, that was flowing with milk and honey. Here was the point. God would be their God. They would be his people. He would supply everything they need, needed as long as they would submit to him. And over the course of their history, they kept having a problem with this whole submission thing, so we'd kick them out of the land. It's really a picture of what originally happened from the beginning of creation with Adam and Eve. God created, perfectly created man and woman, placed them in a perfectly created Eden in a garden. And he said, all of this is for you, for you to enjoy. And he says, as long as you acknowledge my authority. They refused to acknowledge the authority to God. The Israelites refused to acknowledge the authority of God despite all of his goodness. And that's where mankind is everywhere. You know, it's amazing to me to hear uh, people complain about God, to say things about God, to say, how can a loving God do, and then you fill in the blank, you've, you, you've heard it all, right? And what's interesting to me is that sinful man has a tendency to blame God for everything he's not responsible for, but gives him none of the love and adoration and respect for all that, that he is. If they have a nice car, and they have money, and they have food, and they have blessing, and they have family, they seem to think that they're the ones that are responsible, and their goodness, their hard work is the ones that got them. When the Bible clearly says in the book of James, every good and perfect gift comes from above, comes from God. So here's man, wicked man, cursing God, even though they're breathing his air, eating his food, taking care of his blessings. And that's what's amazing about God. God's goodness is not only demonstrated to those who believe in him, but to sinners and a whole, the Bible says that he allows it to rain on the just and the unjust. But yet, even in light of God's goodness, all of his goodness, man still refuses to fully submit to him. Number two, a rejection of authority despite the patience of God. Not only is there a rejection of authority despite the goodness of God, but also the patience of God. Now, follow along with me. At the end of verse one, it says this, and he leased it to tenants and he went into another country. Now, when he begins to tell this parable, the people during Jesus' time, his original audience would have understood exactly what Jesus was talking about. Because during that 50 years around Jesus' life, there were great uh, affluent landowners who were, in fact, trying to find tenants that they would lease the land to, who would overlook it. It wasn't theirs. They were just supposed to be stewards of the land. They were supposed to cultivate it. They were supposed to take care of it. They were to do all of these sorts of things. And then later on, Uh, that this man would come back and he would expect great things from them. Because he gave them great fertile land, because he had done so much work, he says, now I've set it all up, I've done it all, now you just come and tend it. And so when he would return, he would expect them to give them anywhere from a third to 50% of all of the produce that they had looked over and taken a part of. Now, in this text, very clearly, the tenants are the religious leaders during the time of Jesus, they were set apart by God to be able to look over the nation of Israel. They were supposed to come and they were supposed to nurture the people. 
and, and really hone the people and craft the people and, and work with them and nurture them to a point to where they would begin to produce much fruit. Now, just follow me. I know this is complicated. I don't mean it to be. But he was supposed to cultivate them into a people that would produce spiritual fruit. That is, that they would become great witnesses to a lost and dying world. That was God's plan for the Jewish people all the time. He wasn't rejecting all the nations. He was choosing one so that they would reach all of the nations. You guys following me with that? And so that's what these religious leaders were supposed to be doing, is leading them to be faithful witnesses to the one true God. But we've seen that they failed time and time again. We saw that what they actually did in the, in the scenario of Jesus cursing the temple, what do we see? Instead of making the temple a house of prayer for all nations, what do they do? They turn it into a den of thieves for their own selfish um, desires for money and affluence. And so they have failed. Now, now right, rightly, God, or, or excuse me, this, this landowner should have come in and had every right to be able to dismiss him. To be able to fire them, possibly even kill them, or, or at least deal with them legally because they had broken this contract that they had between the two. But instead of wrath, guess what they find? They find mercy and patience. Because this landowner, the scriptures say, look, notice what he does. He says, when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get them uh, some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant, and they struck him on the head, and they treated him shamefully. And they sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some beat, and some were killed. So here's God. He says, I'm going to entrust you with my people. They disobey him, but instead of God wiping them out, guess what he does? He gives them another chance, and another chance, and another chance, and another chance. How does he give them these chances? He sends to them prophets, a long line of prophets to come and to warn the people of their sin. To tell them, you must submit yourself to the authority of the owner. You must submit yourself to the creator, God. You must do it. But time and time again, they didn't listen. Instead, what they did, even though these men were bringing truth on behalf of God, they were, they were being kicked out. They were being beaten. Some of them were being killed. We see this through the history. Let me give you a couple examples. Elijah comes, speaks the truth. He's driven out to, by himself into the wilderness. Isaiah, according to tradition, was sawn in two. Zechariah was stoned to death. Even as early as John the Baptist, he was decapitated. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 37 through 20, 38, it demonstrates how these sinful people dealt with God's messengers. It says they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. Even though God, loving God, had shown all of his goodness, the people rebelled. But instead of God wiping them out, instead of if just wiping them out, he showed great patience by providing them even greater goodness. But still, these religious leaders would not repent and submit to the authority of God. Number three, you see the rejection there of the love of God. A rejection despite the love of God. The re rejection in spite of the goodness of God. He's given them all these wonderful things. Rejection in spite of the patience of God. He, he kept sending messengers, warning them to repent. Here's a third, despite of the love of God. Now notice verse six. He, has, he, has, he had still one other, a beloved son. So he's gonna send his son now. Why his son? Because his son has far more authority than these messengers do. 
The messengers were just taking the message, had no authority on their own, but had only authority as they would delay and record and be able to convey this message as it had been given to them by this landowner. But now they wouldn't listen to him, so now they're going to ump it, and they're going to bring more authority. They're going to bring the rightful heir. As the rightful heir, he held all of the authority as the father, so he's going to come. It would be like the father himself had showed up to be able to tell them what it is that they ought to be doing. And so this son comes. Now, you, you know as well as I do, it doesn't take a genius to figure out who this son is, right? Especially when he uses the word, the beloved son. It's the same exact word that God used, the father used, and Mark recorded in Mark chapter 1 and verse 11 at Jesus' baptism when he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Who is the son that this farmer brings, this landowner brings? is Jesus Christ. He sends his only son, his beloved son, but now notice this, he, he expects that this is going to do it, that they're going to, maybe they wouldn't listen to the prophets, but surely they were going to listen to this man's son. That's why he says, finally he sent the son to them saying, they will respect my son. But notice how they respond in verse seven. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. Now, understand what's going on. This is why in the previous weeks I've said, the reason I believe Jesus is so hard on these men is because they know who Jesus is. They're not deceived. They know that he is the son of God. Yet, like Romans 1 says, they suppress that truth in all unrighteousness. They know it's Jesus. They know it's God talking. They know he's the promised Messiah, but yet they still refuse to obey him. And instead of obeying, what do they do? They beat him and they kill him and they throw him over the fence. Have nothing to do with him. And this is what's going on. All for what? Because they wanted the garden, they wanted the vineyard to themselves. They just wanted to be their own gods. They wanted to be able to live whatever way they wanted to. So they killed not only the prophets, but they also kill the son of God. Now, I don't know about you, but it would be hard. My son is down here. It would be, I don't think I would send him anywhere or want to send him anywhere for him to be killed. You understand that? Now, I know that for him and even for my daughters, we pray that God will use them in a great and mighty way. And I pray that God might even call them and raise them up to be able to take the gospel to those who do not have it. Iran, Iraq, wherever it is. And as a father's heart, that is hard. But ever since before they were ever born, we prayed that prayer for them. Let them be used for the glory of God. But I got to let you know, man, that is hard. That is hard. And some people be able to look at this and they say to themselves, why in the world would God send his son to these wicked people? Only one word, love. He loved wicked man. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So God shows us this great goodness. They don't respond. Shows them perseverance and patience, but they still continue to not acknowledge God and, and his authority over his life. Then finally he sends the greatest gift of all, his only son, his beloved son, the greatest act of love. We know that God loves us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. No greater love does a man have than a man to lay down his life for another demonstration of his love, but yet they still would not listen. Number four, the rejection of authority despite the wrath of God. Look at verse nine. It begins, what will the owner of the vineyard do? 
You know what I think this is like? It's kind of like this. You remember when you first begin to parent? And it's not like later on you know what you're doing, but in the beginning you at least think you know what you're doing. Later you just know you don't know what you're doing. You guys with me, right? And in the beginning when you're raising your kids, this is kind of how you think. You know what? I'm going to really be able to get my kids on my side and obey me because of my goodness. I'm going to give them all kinds of stuff, and as I give them all kinds of stuff, they'll become more obedient. But what do they actually become? Little brats and more disobedient, right? Then we sit there and say, well, listen, I'm just going to have patience. I'm just going to count to 10. I'm just going to count to three, and I'm going to give them time to be able to respond before I whoop them, right? One, two, three, three and a quarter, they're in a hat, right? And so I'm going to give them a little bit. And so I'm, I'm giving them grace. But what do they do? They take advantage of it all the more. Well, you know what? I'm just going to tell them how much I love them. If they just knew how much I love them, don't you know how much I love you and want the best for you? Yeah, 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 yeah. And they just kind of go in their thing. So when all else fails, what do you do when none of that, when the goodness and the patience and the love doesn't work, what do you do? The wrath. Warning of the wrath. I think this is kind of what's going on here. Verse 9, he says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? In other words, in light of his goodness and patience and love that he's bestowed upon them, what will he do? He says, he will come and he will destroy the tenants and he will give the vineyard to others. Now, in the immediate context of God's warning towards these religious leaders, what he was doing is he was giving the prophecy that would take place in 70 A.D., but 40 years from this time, Titus is going to come in, he's going to rule over, and he's going to overthrow, and he's going to destroy the temple. These religious leaders are going to be completely out of a job, basically. And what's going to happen is the good news of Jesus Christ is then, because of the persecution of the saints, is going to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. You see that in the book of Acts being played out. But there's a broader application. And that broader application is this, is those who refuse to submit fully to the lordship and authority of Jesus Christ and recognize him as the supreme authority and creator of all things and above us, he says they will be destroyed. This is Jesus' way of saying that they will be cast into a fiery hell. This means that they will be cast into eternal darkness, into eternal uh, suffering, that those who refuse to bend the knee to Jesus Christ will be in a place that Jesus himself says will be a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now you would think that this would possibly get the attention of these men, but it doesn't. So Jesus continues on, he says in Psalm chapter 1 and verse 18, or excuse me, he, it says in the next verse where he's quoting from Psalm 118, he says this, he says, have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is a marvelous in our eyes. Here's what Jesus is referring to. He's quoting from Psalm 118. There was a belief uh, during that day that when they would begin to construct the Old Testament, the first temple, Solomon's temple, that they were putting everything together. And as they were doing it, they, 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 they kind of cut this stone out and they would have to haul it in and place it in its place. Well, one stone didn't quite fit in the beginning, so they kind of just kind of threw it to the side and it tumbled down into the, into the valley there. And when they were trying to finish up, they, they, they were trying to find this one stone that would just kind of fit perfectly. We think of the cornerstone as, as the cornerstone, which would be the first um, block that would be laid in the foundation. Everything else would go up around it. That's not what they have in mind for the cornerstone here. For the cornerstone here, he's speaking of the stone that 
brought it all together. It would be the final stone that completed the work of the temple itself. And he says, and so what they were, do, they were looking for, and somebody remembered, they couldn't get the stone quite right, and somebody said, hey, listen, I see that, there, I, it reminds me, I, I remember, we had cast out a stone, we had thrown it down, where is it? It's down in the valley. Go get it, they get it, and they place it in that last little spot, and it's the perfect fit, and the whole temple is completed. It all comes together through that particular stone. Jesus is basically saying this. Hey, guys, if you reject all of this, even if you reject my love, even if you reject my goodness, even if you reject God's patience, and you cast me aside and you kill me, God's will is still going to be done. You cannot stop the sovereign will of God. He says you may cast it apart, but by you casting it apart, it will come back and it will complete God's work. So that people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people and people group will come to faith in me. You cannot stop it. No matter how much you want to reject it, no matter how much you want to say, hey, I'm just going to turn my back on the authority of the God, authority of God will ultimately come back and reign supreme. That's what Jesus is saying here. Now, after all of this, how do you think that they would respond? Well, in verse 12, it tells us. This is despite of the goodness of God, the patience of God, the love of God, and the wrath of God. Says this in verse 12, and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and they went away. They even got it. Have you ever, did you used to have parents that used to talk about bad things and, and as they're talking about, you know, kids that rebel and do all these kind of things? And, and you're like, yeah, yeah, that's bad, that's bad. Then you realize that they were actually talking about you. You, you know, you're like, wait a minute. This, hey, wait a minute. That sounds awfully, wait, that was me the whole time you were talking about, right? Well, these guys are usually clueless about everything, but here they actually get it. They actually realize that Jesus is speaking directly towards them. And they, you would think after all of that that you would at least hope that they would repent and get right with God, but guess what they do? They don't. They still refuse him. They still refuse him. So in light of this, really, there's, there's really just two ways that you can respond to what we're going to do before we come to the Lord's Supper this morning. There's some of you here this morning that are much like the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and those religious leaders. And you say, well, how in the world, how do I know if I'm like them? Let me ask you a couple questions and we'll close with this. Number one, do you have a long habit of refusing to submit to God? They have a long habit. They were sent over a long period of time, prophet, warning, 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 warning. You need to repent. You need to get right. But yet, for some reason, for a lot of people, they hear it time and time again. They hear the gospel of Jesus Christ time and time again. But yet, they refuse to really, truly bend the knee and believe. You have a long habit, a long habit of refusing to submit to God's authority and disobedience. Number two, do you find yourself angry at those who speak truth into your life? You know, there are family members that, just like the prophets, they wanted to beat him and they wanted to kill him. And it's amazing to me how many people would sit there and go, I don't know why everybody is against me. Who's against you? My pastor, my mom, my dad, my closest friends, my other family members, my coworkers. They're all against me. Why? Because they're all saying the same thing. What are they doing? They're speaking truth into your life. And you've taken offense and you try to push out everybody in your life that's trying to speak truth into your life. It's a demonstration that you have a heart of these religious leaders. Third, does the thought of Jesus' love motivate you to do right? See, when a believer comes to faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
So we don't sit around and go, oh no, we're going we're gonna to burn in hell because that has been washed away. Our sins have been paid for. We've been made right before God. The greatest motivating factor in the heart of every believer is the love of God. When they hear about Jesus Christ dying in their place on the cross, that is the greatest motivation that leads us and sits there and says, God, I know what you've did, done for me. I now bend a knee to you. Does it motivate? Does it stir you? Is that what drives you to live for Jesus Christ? Here's a fourth. Do you presume upon God's God thinking that he will never judge you? Do you presume upon God thinking that he will never ultimately judge you? I think the biggest lie that people often have is this. I have more time. I have more time. Look, I've been disobeying all these years. I certainly have more time to continue to disobey God and to continue to go about my way. Here's a warning from Romans chapter 2 and verses 4 and 5. Listen. He says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? He says, The reason that he's given you time, the reason that he's given you warning to break from that sin and submit yourself fully to God is because he's been patient to you to show you the love, to give you the time. It's, his patience is meant for you to see it and to repent and to turn from your sin. And he says, but, verse 5, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. See, here's where I think that some people might even be. They, they think, I've got another day. I've got more time. Maybe another time in my life. But you don't have the time. God's given you the time, and now is the time. God's given you a preacher that's telling you to repent, become right, and submit to him fully and completely. And I'm telling you, you will either be a part of it or you will be against it. But God will rule supreme. You will either confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and bow your knee now, or you will do it then because you will be forced to. Will you repent and believe? Will you turn from your sin? Will you do that which is right? And I know some would sit there and they would say, they would say well, Brother Mike, I don't like all this wrath talk. I don't like all of this, this hell talk. I don't like this. Why can't we just talk about what Jesus talked about? And, 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 and everything is sweet and loving and tender and all that kind of stuff. I will remind you that it is Jesus that spoke about the wrath of God. He's the one that has spoken about hell and destruction. Will you repent and believe? You say, but I do believe. But listen, it's only intellectual assent. You believe as the demons believe. It's very clear from the way that you live your life. You sit there and from one mouth you say, I serve you. From the rest of your life, you don't submit to him at all. You do as you please because you think it's your life and it's not your life. And it's not your world. I'm talking about true faith that not only changes your mind, but changes your action. Will you repent and believe? You have, by the grace, mercy, love, patience of God, been warned. Will you respond? Jesus, we come to you this morning. God, and there's two different sides. One for those who are unbelievers. God, will they come this morning, give their life to you, repent, God, there are believers in here that perhaps are truly believers, but God, they are held on to sin in their life. God, they have been warned.
And though they may not have the wrath of God, certainly the discipline of God is pending their way. But God, let us not allow fear to be our greatest motivation, but rather the love that you have given to us, the goodness you have given us. Let your patience and goodness and kindness lead us to repentance this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? Would you stand? And will we prepare our hearts before we take the Lord's Supper this morning? I'll be down here. The altar is open. Will you respond? Will you respond? Amen. We're going to continue in a spirit of worship this morning. I'm going to have you be seated as our ushers come forward at this time. Man, would you come forward to be able to help and serve here for the ordinance of the Lord's Supper? If you're not a member uh, at Celebration, that's okay. What you need to do is be a member of God's universal church. You've repented of your sins, place your faith completely on the completed work of Jesus Christ. And um, if that's you and you know that there is no sin that you're walking in perpetually, man, then come and let's, let's take part. Let's break bread uh, together. Um, we come to observe the ordinance of the Lord's Supper given to us to celebrate in memory of his broken body and his shed blood. And it said that on that night before he was betrayed at the conclusion of the feast of the Passover, which he and his disciples were celebrating, that he took bread and having broken it,